Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Down Snow's History. Today in 1921, 100 years ago, on May the 31st, Tulsa, Oklahoma, was torn apart by sectarian violence, by ethnic violence. The white population of Tulsa, stirred up by a fake news report in a local newspaper, went on a rampage that lasted for around 24 hours. The white majority community of Tulsa looted, burned, destroyed African-American properties, businesses, particularly in the prosperous community of Greenwood known as the Black Wall Street, for its successful businesses and the wealth concentrated there. It was probably the richest black community in the USA. It is known simply as the single worst incident of racial violence in American history. Perhaps a thousand people were injured and up to 300, perhaps more, were killed. It was then covered up. Attempts were made to expunge it from the historical record. Those attempts failed. Thanks to members of the community who told their stories, thanks to journalists, thanks to historians. One of those historians is Scott Ellsworth. He's a New York Times bestseller. He used to be a historian at the Smithsonian Institute, and he currently teaches history in the Department of Afro-American and African Studies at the University of Michigan. He's written a new account of this massacre. He's also played his part in Tulsa itself, unearthing, literally, some of its victims. Scott has also helped us source some interviews in an archive with survivors of the massacre, and you'll be hearing their voices as well. On this centenary, it's obviously hugely important to remember, to try and understand this extraordinary explosion of violence. We've been talking a lot this year about race relations in America and elsewhere. To listen to all the back episodes of those podcasts, you can go to historyhit.tv, become a subscriber, and you can listen to all of those podcasts ad-free. We've had some really, really interesting historians and thinkers exploring this vital and very timely subject. But in the meantime, everyone, here on the anniversary of Tulsa is Scott Ellsworth. Enjoy. Scott, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, I'm thrilled to be with you today. Tell me about Tulsa, Oklahoma, before this incident. What was that community like? 
Tulsa, Oklahoma, you know, right in the middle of the U.S. was the boom town of all boom towns. In the year 1900, it was a dusty cowboy and Creek Indian town, less than a thousand people. By the year 1920, there were a hundred thousand people. There were electric streetcars and movie theaters and mansions and opera houses and you name it. And the reason for that was oil. In 1905, the richest small oil field in the world was discovered right outside of Tulsa and people became millionaires overnight and people just poured in to this town and it grew so fast that people called it the magic city, as in now you don't see it, now you do. There was a huge community of African-Americans. Were they from the earlier days of this Oklahoma town or had they arrived with the huge boom of people? Well, I would say that most of them came with the boom. Some of them had been there for 80 plus years. They had come as slaves of the Indian tribes that were moved on the Trail of Tears from southeastern United States to what was then Indian territory. But most people came to Tulsa from the western parts of the south, from Arkansas and Louisiana and Mississippi. In fact, the black community in Tulsa, known as Greenwood, was named after Greenwood, Mississippi. And those people came in part to be a part of this incredible boomtown, but they were also trying to escape the worst parts of Jim Crow, lynchings, murders, all of these onerous laws. And there had been an effort to turn Oklahoma into an all-black state. It didn't work, but this was a place where people got a new start. And the old-timers I talked to back in the 1970s said their folks came out to what they felt was the promised land. So there's almost a double opportunity for African-Americans. There's new political reasons, but there's also an economic opportunity going on. Absolutely. And it was a place where the American dream was starting to work for Black people. Scott was also kind enough to share some of the interviews he has conducted over the years with survivors of the massacre. He interviewed the following people in Tulsa in 1978. W.D. Williams was 16 years old in 1921. His parents owned a business in Greenwood. They lived above their stores and offices, and he remembers Tulsa's prosperity. The black people here came here on the heels of this oil discovery. Okay. And uh, there was plenty of work, plenty of money. So what happened in 1921? Is this one of those extraordinary moments in history that has long roots stretching decades into the past, centuries into the past? Or was this just a sudden tsunami? It's kind of both. So I think it's important for the listeners to know that American race relations right around the years of World War I were at an all-time low. This was an era of the rebirth of the Ku Klux Klan, the largest terrorist organization in American history, which was anti-African-American, also anti-Jewish, anti-Catholic. This is a time where lynchings are still going on nationwide. The numbers had started to go down, but the barbarity has increased. In the United States, there were people burned alive at the stake in the early 20th century. This was also a period of something we all called race riots in those days. Everyone did. And it meant there was some sort of a racial incident that then turned into white mobs invading African-American communities, attacking black people, looting, burning, and all of that. So all of this is going on in the air in America. It's part of the atmosphere. But also there was a very strong feeling amongst African-Americans, especially African-American World War I veterans who had fought to make the world safe for democracy in France, 
were treated decently by the French, and they were wondering when they got back to the United States when they were going to get some democracy back home. And there was a sense when whites invade our communities, we're going to fight back. So that's part of the air for everything that happened. That's in the atmosphere. Robert Fairchild describes his memories of the racial animus. You may want to have a quick listen to this if you're playing to young people. He uses the racialized language of the time. Was it only whites that would get their shoes shined in that parlor? That's correct. Okay. Yeah, no, they, they, had, uh, they had to sign up Negroes not wanted. Okay. All over town. At one time, Oklahoma, I mean, Tulsa in particular, had been uh, open. No segregation. Was that be? Do you remember that, or was that before you came? Before I came. And people would tell you about that? Yeah, people would tell me about it. But in order to make sure that we got the message, they put up the signs. Mm-hmm. I had heard some of the old-timers say okay. that at one time that we didn't have these problems. And in 1919 or 1918, there was a lynching of a woman in Wagner. And uh, black no, woman, yeah, black woman, and they not only killed her but drug up and down the street behind them some of the vehicles. Okay, and the Negroes read about it and said, "No, well, they try that over here. We're gonna fix it." Mm-hmm. Here's W. D. Williams. What about the Ku Klux Klan? Were they around before the riot? Yeah, they were. <laughs> what would they do? Just parade and. And they didn't do any harm so far as I could, you know, as, as I remember with, with blacks. They just getting started. Good. Where would they parade? Would they put? They wouldn't parade down Greenwood, or would they? No, they'd go around town. They didn't come down. Greenwood. Did they ever burn any crosses or around? Yeah, they'd burn crosses up on the Brickyard Hill and around. But I don't know if anybody had John Smithman. The brother to of the newspaper publisher had his ear cut off. Cut off. And what about the short-term triggers for this outbreak? So the short-term trigger, there was an incident in an elevator in a downtown office building in Tulsa on May 30th, 1921. A 19-year-old African-American shoe shiner or boot black had gone down the street to use a, quote, Negro restroom, a colored restroom on the top floor of the Drexel building. And this is something he would have done every day. And to be able to do that, he had to ride the elevator. And elevators in 1921 all had elevator operators. Some people may remember still no elevators with a wheel that you turn. It's hard to line up the floors. So what we think happened that as Dick Rowland entered the elevator, he tripped he shot his hands out to break his fall, but in so doing, he caught the shoulder of Sarah Page, a white 17-year-old elevator operator. She screamed. Dick ran out of the elevator. The Tulsa police were summoned, but they didn't seem particularly worried. They didn't put out an all-points bulletin. They arrest him, but not until the next day, very calmly at his house, bring him in, and the wheels of justice seem to be turning just fine. In fact, Sarah Page refused to press charges. W.D. Williams actually worked with the young man, Dick Rowland, whose alleged incident in the elevator sparked the response from the white community. Do you think Rowland did anything in that elevator? I mean, judging on what you knew of his character? I don't think so. Okay. I don't think so. I think it was just a matter of, uh, supposedly, when the elevator got down the throne and opened this 
white fellow, so um, Brace and she were just struggling with he was uh, attacking. Right, okay. Well, that's the bridge. Anyway, he was exonerated. The Tulsa Tribune, the white afternoon daily newspaper, decided to take a whole different tack. They had a front page article that said this wasn't a simple tripping on an elevator. It said that Dick Rowland sexually assaulted Sarah Page, that he'd been stalking her, that he scratched her face and tore her clothes. But the Tribune also printed a now lost editorial titled Two Lynch Negro Tonight. Both Robert Fairchild and W.D. Williams remember the atmosphere just before the riot really kicked off. And the Tribune came out that afternoon and told about what had happened and said, it looks as if we're going to have a lynching. Here's W.D. Williams. He was arrested that night. The next day, an article came out in Tribune to lynch Negro tonight. That's the thing that set off the riot. The Tribune hit the streets at about 3 o'clock on Tuesday, May 31st. Within a half an hour, there was lynch talk on the streets of Tulsa. And that soon grew into action. A white lynch mob gathered outside the courthouse, 100, 200, 500, 800. Probably by 9 o'clock at night, there were at least a 1,000 whites gathered outside the courthouse, demanding that the sheriff turn over Dick Rowland to them so he could lynch him. He would not do that. But at around 9.30, a group of 75 African-American World War I vets, many of whom had gone and put their uniforms on, all of them armed with rifles, pistols, and shotguns, went down to the courthouse, presented themselves to the sheriff, said, we're here to help you defend the prisoner if you want to. The sheriff said, no, get out of here. And as they were leaving, an elderly white man tried to wrestle away a gun from a black vet. A shot went off and the massacre began. The worst single incident of racial violence in American history started at that moment. Did those men survive or were they set upon by the crowd? Well, I think most of them did survive. There were whites that were armed. There was a shootout that happened there. But the Black Vets, some died, but the Black Vets were able largely to work their way back to Greenwood, which wasn't far from downtown. There weren't a lot of street lights. It was quite dark. But what happened next is the Tulsa police, who had been absent, they suddenly show up. And rather than try to disarm the mob, and the lynch mob now doesn't care about Dick Rowland. They now have a bloodlust, and they're out to get any African-American they can find. But the police officers deputize members of the mob. Policemen also break into pawn shops and sporting goods stores to get access to rifles and pistols. They start handing them out to mob members and tell them to get a gun and get a black person, although they didn't use that term. Meanwhile, whites murder innocent African-Americans in downtown Tulsa, people getting off of work. The first fires are set on the edge of the community. Whites make drive-by shootings through black residential neighborhoods. They'll pile into cars, fire out both sides of the windows into children's bedrooms, living rooms, parlors, all that. And there's a bit of a firefight at the main African-American commercial district known as Deep Greenwood. But black property owners are able to keep these people from coming. W.D. Williams remembers his father shooting at white rioters as they escaped from the building. He would, like, snipe at people or right. just every once in a while there'd be a few shots or... Well, anytime a guy exposed himself, why, he cut loose. He had the advantage in that... I wish I had a side picture of that girl. 
Uh-huh. <clears throat> but anyway, say for instance, on the back side was the bathroom. Mm-hmm. And right at a little angle like this. It's, it's a sort of triangle shaped building. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the bathroom was in this wasted corners. Okay. So he sat in, and uh, used to be the bathroom and the toilet was separate. So my mother was having this wall knocked out. And where the plumbing came up and angled over, you know, like the vent right. Well, he just put his gun and rested on the man, and the screen was down. It was fired through the screen, but he wasn't exposed to any, any power shots. When your father and, and you split up, and then you went down the alley, and they right. captured you there. Mm-hmm. Okay. So where did they take you then? They took me back up to Greenwood, down the 300 block. Okay. Where this corral of men were. Then they parade us down this way. Okay, south on Greenwood towards Archer. Right. Okay. Well, when it got to, they were going down Archer, but they had buildings burning on that side. Which side? On the? On the south side of Archer. Oh, okay. All right. So they just hurried us over to the Frisco Railroad. You're listening to Dan Snow's History here. We're talking about the massacre in Tulsa 100 years ago. More after this. Have you ever wondered if the Hanging Gardens of Babylon were actually real? Or what made Alexander so great? Join me, Tristan Hughes, twice a week, every week on the Ancients from History hit, where I'm joined by leading academics, best-selling authors, and world-class archaeologists to shine a light on some of ancient history's most fascinating questions, like who built Stonehenge and why? What are the Dead Sea Scrolls and why are they so valuable? And were the Spartan warriors really as formidable as the history books say? Join me, Tristan Hughes, twice a week, every week on the Ancients from History hit wherever you get your podcasts. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Want truly hydrated skin? Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.
then at about two o'clock in the morning, all the fighting seems to end. Some blacks had already left town. Others thought, okay, it's over. Everything's going to be fine. But it wasn't. And what they didn't know is that whites were now organizing in their own neighborhoods, gathering at street corners. Men would jump up on cars and say, look, make sure you have enough ammunition. Make sure you have enough guns. We're going to go in at dawn. So right before dawn on June 1st, 1921, crowds of whites in the thousands had gathered on the outskirts of Greenwood. There was an odd factory whistle that went off. We still don't know what it was from, but it was clearly a signal for them to move forward. And at that point, the mass destruction of Greenwood began. Why do you think this white community was so radicalized? Is there a memory of the terror that the white community lived in the South of slave revolts? Is it about the affluence of the area? Was there an acquisitive nature here? What do you think lends this its extreme severity? Well, I think there's a number of reasons. You have to realize that white supremacy and white racism was just part of the air that white Americans breathed. And again, this is the time of birth of a nation, D.W. Griffith's very important, hugely popular motion picture that basically portrayed African-American men as animals that all they wanted to do was to rape white women. You have these new segregation laws are now being passed in the North and West, as well as in the South. White racism is taught in all of America's universities at Harvard, Yale, here at the University of Michigan. So this is a part of it. Also, whites in Tulsa had lynched a white accused murderer. And the sheriff had turned over this young man, 18-year-old young man, to a white lynch mob. They had murdered him. And then afterwards, the city government, the mayor, the chief of police said this lynching was a good thing because it showed the criminals that the law-abiding citizens in Tulsa weren't going to put up with any more crime. So this is all part of the air. There had been a campaign in the Tribune. They'd written about a white minister who later becomes very important in the Ku Klux Klan, who claimed that white girls were dancing with black men at these illegal roadhouses. I don't think that happened. But there is this great campaign against African-Americans and a great anger. The idea that a black man sexually assaulted a white woman, that just drove white people absolutely crazy and just off the chart angry. I mean, it, it was like a bloodlust that happened. Tell me about the events of that day, the second day of violence. Well, so as these crowds then start marching into Greenwood, some whites had stolen a machine gun from the veterans organization. They had put it at the top of a granary, a grain elevator that looked down onto Greenwood. They began opening fire. And basically, Greenwood is destroyed block by block. Any African-Americans that fight back were overwhelmed and killed or chased away. And there were a lot of African-Americans who fought back against this mob. Everyone else was, quote, arrested by police, National Guard members, members of the mob, disarmed and taken away. Whites then went building by building, house by house, broke into them, looted them and set them on fire. And this goes block by block by block. Robert Fairchild has some vivid memories of the day itself. The lady that we read it from, she stayed with she water block. He was black, okay. It wasn't, it was all black. Wasn't okay. a, wasn't a, wasn't a, no white anywhere near the, that, that area. Okay. And uh, they told her to leave. She said, no, 
I'm not going to leave you because if I leave you're going to burn my house down and if you're going to burn my house down you might as well kill me now and so she stayed and they let her alone do you remember her name? yeah Mrs. Hardridge I'm told that the Negroes uh, fought one of the whites until they got down to the Frisco Railroad tracks in Cincinnati and they were supposed to make the last last did stand man of course they were outnumbered and they finally had to flee. Right. And of course uh, so the next morning we got up and said, I guess we better get out of here. And so we started walking down the Midland Valley track. Was this uh, right after dawn or uh, do you remember what Around time about in the morning? Five, six o'clock in the morning. Okay. Just just barely debris. And of course when you got out there you saw people from out. Some of the local militia, what they call the National Guard, they were mobilized, but rather than, and they were all whites, rather than to try to stop the invading mob, they instead sort of set themselves facing the African-American community against an alleged black invasion. And they ended up opening up with their machine guns on African-Americans as well, too. We also know that there were airplanes in the air. There weren't many airplanes in Tulsa in 1921. There's evidence that at least one of them dropped dynamite onto Greenwood. And you have furious firefights as groups of blacks try to fight back this mob, but they're overwhelmed. White people outnumbered African-Americans nine to one in Greenwood or in Tulsa anyway. And eventually it's just destroyed. You have over 1,000 African-American homes and businesses were looted and burned to the ground. All the churches, 12 churches were destroyed. So you had two movie theaters, two newspaper offices. One of the two schools was burned to the ground. A black hospital was burned to the ground. 30 restaurants, 30 grocery stores, dress shops, photography studios, you name it. There were 35 square blocks that afterwards photographs look like Hiroshima or Nagasaki, or Frankfurt, or Berlin at the end of World War II. W.D. Williams describes the scenes after the white community had set fire to the black neighborhoods. Okay. So I went down. Didn't really see what it looked like. Boy, they all found all that. The family business was burnt to the ground, and he and his mum and dad had to live in a tent for six weeks after the riot. Put a tent up down there on the Greenland property, and then the Red Cross was distributing right. tents. So we stayed in that tent. There at Greenwood and Archer, where you're. No, down right here. Oh, was. okay, where the theater was. And. Okay, so how long did you stay in the tent? I mean, about, well, it's about, uh, I imagine about, altogether, June, July, August, by September, they had put this building back up. The Williams building? Yeah. Okay, how how did your, I mean, there was a burned out shell, right? No, the it was, I think it was a dream when they put it in place. Yeah, okay. And it had some rooms up there, but it wasn't quite, you have recently led a team that's found an unmarked mass grave 
That's correct. This is a long effort that I started 23 years ago during the era of a state commission on the massacre. We did a lot of work. We interviewed 300 people back then. We found records nobody had seen. We had an inkling as to where some of these victims were buried in mass grave, but we were caught up in politics and shut down. And then two years ago, the now current mayor of Tulsa, G.T. Bynum, asked me to help get that search started again. We went back to work. We have a terrific team of archaeologists, of forensic scientists, and history volunteers. And in October, we discovered a mass grave in a Tulsa cemetery that contains at least 12 coffins that we are confident hold the remains of identified and unidentified African-American massacre victims. And on June 1st, we're going to begin exhuming that grave. Is it interesting that you've been so involved with the community there? Because the second part of this story, in a way, is the fact that it was completely unknown and covered up almost from the minute it occurred. Yeah, which is what I write about in this brand new book, The Groundbreaking, that just came out about the massacre. So for 50 years, the story of the massacre was actively covered up in Tulsa. In the white community, the white daily newspapers went out of their way never to mention it. Official records disappeared, were stolen and disappeared. People were told this was just something you didn't talk about. And researchers, as late as the early 1970s, had their lives threatened, had their livelihoods threatened for bringing it up. Ironically, in the African-American community in Greenwood, it wasn't spoken about publicly either for a long time. And I think the way to think about it is to think of the massacre survivors like Holocaust survivors, in that they had experienced these horrific traumatic events in their younger years, and they didn't want to burden their children or grandchildren with those memories. So this is something they simply didn't talk about. So for about 50 years, this was covered up. And in the past 50 years, we've been slowly getting the story out. You mentioned the surviving community there. Were African-Americans able to resurrect a community, to make a life in the city after this appalling ethnic cleansing? Yes, and that's what the astonishing story is. Remember, Tulsa, there was so much money in Tulsa. So you had very high employment before the massacre of African-American women as well as men who would work in the white community in service jobs as butlers, cooks, maids, chauffeurs, ditch diggers, dishwashers, whatnot. But they got a good paycheck. They worked in the white community and they brought that paycheck back to Greenwood and spent it at Black-owned stores and institutions, which allowed the commercial district to grow. What's astonishing is that within a week or so after the riot, these Black men and women, they went back to work in these same white neighborhoods where people had been trying to kill them, and the money started to flow back into Greenwood. Also, there was not a bank in Greenwood before the massacre, so the most well-to-do merchants, black merchants, they had money in white banks in downtown that wasn't hurt. So what's astonishing is that the community rebuilds and fairly quickly. You have three-story brick buildings in deep Greenwood that are rebuilt within a year and a half. And old-timers would tell me that Greenwood in the 1940s was even greater than it had been in the 1920s. There are voices who say that sometimes we can be too aware of our history, that these events are so appalling that perhaps it's best if we try and do what many of the survivors of that massacre did, which is actually try and bury the truth. Why is it important that we have a full reckoning? Why is it important we talk about this? 
Well, sure. And I must add that this has been painful for Tulsans. I mean, there you have generations of people who were taught a completely false history of their city. As the historian John O. Franklin once said, Tulsa lost its sense of honesty, and it did for a long time. So for people to grow up and realize, oh, my God, something else happened here, that's been traumatic for a lot of people. But look, our history is important. As someone once told me not long ago, history is education. Everything else is just training. But to be able to learn from our history, we have to learn from the whole thing. You just can't pick the parts that are good. Look, the United States has made great contributions to the world. There's no question about it. And those are important things that need to be talked about. But we've also had great failings as well. And we have to teach about those. If you're going to learn from the past, you have to face the whole thing. Look, the past happened. It is what it was. But to learn from it, we have to hear the whole thing. Perhaps one of the US's greatest contributions to the world can be honesty about its past, which is in short supply among the world's nations these days. <laughs> well, that would be marvelous if that's the case. You know, the irony is that Tulsa had this great skeleton literally buried in its municipal closet for so long, and it has been forced now to grapple with it for a while. And in an odd way, I think Tulsa is ahead of most communities. We live in what, in the groundbreaking, the new book I refer to as the age of reevaluation. And I know this is going on because I read the Times every day and statues are coming down, rightly or wrongly. Buildings are being renamed. Plaques are going up, all of that. And I think that's healthy for us, but it's hard to do. It's a difficult moment, but we need to go through it because we have to be honest about how we got to where we are today. Well, thank you so much for all the work you've done on this and for coming on this podcast. Remind us again what the book's called. Yes, the book is called The Groundbreaking, The Tulsa Race Massacre, and An American City's Search for Justice. In the UK, it's been published by Icon Books. and has a slightly different subtitle in the US where it's been published by Dutton Penguin Random House. Thank you very much for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. I think we have the history on our children. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all work on and finish. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Just before you go, a bit of a favour to ask. I totally understand if you don't want to become a subscriber or pay me any cash money. Makes sense. But if you could just do me a favour, it's for free. Go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. If you give it a five-star rating and give it an absolutely glowing review, purge yourself, give it a glowing review. I'd really appreciate that. It's a tough world out there. Law of the jungle out there. And I need all the fire support I can get. So that will boost it up the charts. It's so tiresome. But if you could do it, I'd be very, very grateful. Thank you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.